today's scripture reading comes from John 2, 1 through 11. So follow along with me as I read. Three days later, they all went to celebrate a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited together with him and his disciples. While they were celebrating, the wine ran out, and Jesus' mother hurried over to her son. Mary says, The host stands on the brink of embarrassment. There are many gifts, and there is no more guest, and there is no more wine. And Jesus says, Dear woman, is it our problem they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not arrived. But she turned to the servants and said, Do whatever my son tells you. In that area were six massive stone, jar, stone water pots that could each hold 20 to 30 gallons. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites, and Jesus' instructions were clear. Fill each water pot with water until it's ready to spill over the top. Then fill a cup and deliver it to the head waiter. They did exactly as they were instructed. After tasting the water that had become wine, the head, wait head waiter couldn't figure out where such wine came from, even though the servants knew. And he called over the bridegroom in amazement. The head waiter says, This wine is delectable. Why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine? A host would generally serve the good wine first, and, in his, and when his inebriated guests don't notice or care, he would serve the inferior wine. You have held back the best for last. Jesus performed this miracle, the first of his sons in Cana of Galilee. They did not know how this happened, but when the disciples and the servants witnessed this miracle, their faith blossomed. Before I move into this text, I just want to say this right here, because I, with the psalm uh, text that Diane just read, there was just a phrase in there, and I, and I love the, the message's rendition of this particular passage. But in the psalm reading, it says, yet in, guard, in, yet in God's largeness, nothing gets lost. Not even, not even a small, seemingly irrelevant wedding in the middle of Podunk. And you don't get lost either. Back to the text. I love weddings. Everyone is happy and shiny and hopeful, and if you're thinking R.A.M. at this point, that's okay. I used happy and shiny on purpose. The bride is always beautiful. The groom is smiling. The cake is wonderful. The food delicious, and the wine, if there is any, is plentiful. When you go to a wedding as a married person, it can bring back, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings of your wedding day, and maybe sometimes even rekindle that a uh, spark that maybe has gotten a little bit dimmer for you and your spouse. Or if your marriage is really hard, it can make you sad to go to a wedding. And I've been to both, I've been both of these at weddings. My first wedding cost less than $500. There were no bridal showers. There were no bachelor or bachelorette parties. We ran off and got married. We went to Gatlinburg with my mom and dad and my brother. I didn't pick out china or towels or blenders or stem glasses. We just ran off. And just to be clear, my mom and dad were not happy with this choice. And that isn't reflected in the pictures from that wedding. Both of my mom and dad are standing there very serious and very scally. They were not happy about this occasion at all. 
we had a tiny cake. And when I say tiny cake, it was literally about this big. It was maybe like four cupcakes together. I don't know. We didn't get to eat any of it. I have a brother that's four years older than me, four years younger than me, I'm sorry, and he ate all of it before any of us got to it. Yeah. Isn't that great? We ate, he ate all of it. We got together in my mom and dad's hotel room after the ceremony. There was no wine. There was no catering. I did my own hair and makeup, and I, my dress was $75, and I had press-on nails on. But I was young and a romantic and an idealist and hopeful, and I imagine most brides and grooms are. So I did some research over the past couple of weeks on what it would mean to be, Jew, be a Jew, be Jewish in first century uh, Palestine and, and what a wedding would have looked like at that point. So I want to go through some phases here. It's very fascinating research, very uh, interesting. So first, there is a promise or a pledge, and this is most likely when the two are children and the families would come together and there would be a promise or a pledge between the two. Then there is the betrothal, and during this time, the groom would build a house for him and his bride, and the groom's father had to sign off saying, okay, the house is ready, you can get married, which explains why the long betrothals were a thing in Jesus' day. They were building a house. Um, Now, during this betrothal period, if someone has been spiritually unclean during this period in in the other, in the other intended finds out about it, there can be an issue of divorce by either party, which I found curious. And then there is a marriage contract called Ketubah, and I've always pronounced it Ketubah, but it's not. It's Ketubah. I had to look that up this week. So, uh, the Ketubah guarantees support for the wife in the event of divorce or in the death of the husband. Judaism lives in stories, but it also provides for the ordinary world. The bride is not only Eve, she is also a woman who has obligations to her husband, and the groom, Adam, is reciprocally... He's he's responsible too. I can't talk today, I'm sorry. So the marriage rite represents not only an occasion in Israel's story, but a legal transaction by which the rights and obligations of each party have to be expressed and guaranteed in, in a contract. The thing that I found most interesting about this Ketubah, I'm going to get it right one of these days, uh, and it was written in Aramaic, uh, the language of the Ketubah, I cannot talk this morning, and I am so sorry. Ketubah uh, uh, specifies, specifies the legal standing of the husband's obligation to the wife. In order to pay what is owing to her, should he divorce her, or in order to provide for her, if he dies before she does, the husband pledges even the shirt off of his back. The bride has no obligations in this contract. Interesting. After this this contract is signed, the groom veils the bride. Now, this is curious because we do this backwards, right? Nowadays, we, if, you, if a bride walks down the aisle with a veil and she's unveiled, they do this differently. The bride comes before him and he puts a veil over her face. Then the bride and groom go under a marriage canopy called a hoopah. And so under this hoopah, uh, this rite maintains 
that Adam and Eve in Eden are present under the marriage canopy with that bride and groom. Along with the memory and hope of the Israelites beyond the destruction of Jerusalem, destined once more to rejoice. The words and deeds of the wedding rite transform the space, time, action, and community of the eye of the groom and the eye of the bride into the we of Israelites of Adam and Eve. That space is contained in this open canopy under an open sky. It is held up by four poles, and it is open on all four sides. I've actually been to a wedding where there was a, a hoopah. It's really pretty. This one commentary that I read said, The hoopah represents the shelter and privacy of the home that the bride and groom will create following their marriage. The home is central in Jewish life. It is a place where we grow up, learn to share in love, and from which we also secure our independence. You will see that the bride and the groom stand in the center of the hoopah, and the walls are formed around this open canopy, but there are walls formed by the ones closest to them, like the bridesmaid and the best man and the, and the minister that performs the ceremony. Just as the walls of our home protect us from the elements, offering warmth and security, so too the walls of the hoopah, that is our family and friends, provide support and strength with their love. But it also opens up on four sides, this canopy, to symbolize that their home should always be open to those in need, that they should always stand ready to show hospitality to a stranger. Now, while they are under this canopy, Hold on, I lost my place. Ah, here we go. While they are under this canopy, the groom says to the bride, May you, our sister, be fruitful and prosper. May God make you as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you favor and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you kindness and grant you peace. And again, the bride has nothing to say. This is all, the onus is all on the groom. Then come, okay, then come the seven blessings, which relate to the marriage that is about to begin with drinking wine after every blessing. And all of these blessings, this was fascinating too, what they would say, and they all relate to something in the marriage, and uh, after they would say this, the, one of the blessings, they would drink the wine, the, the audience or their, their, their people that are there at the wedding, they would drink the wine too. And then there is the yajud. It, this is at the end of the ceremony where the bride and groom go into a private room and consummate the marriage. That sounds like something, right? There is some indication that there would have been witnesses who would stand outside the door to hear that the consummation had taken place. Now, the tradition of the celebrations lasting seven days come from Moses. We've heard that Jewish weddings last seven days, and I was curious why. What's the, what's the deal with the seven days? And it's because of uh, Moses who instituted this, and then also from Jacob when he married Leah and Rachel. In both cases, there was a seven-day uh, partying going on after the wedding. This is the thing that I found the most interesting about this Jewish process of a wedding. During those seven days of feasting, the bride and the groom do not work. 
nor may they be involved in business transactions, transactions of any kind. They only eat, drink, and rejoice with each other. Each day, close relatives and friends of the couple will host them in their home, providing them a meal and, and, and just kind of get together. So they do that seven nights in a row after their wedding with different families and friends. Their obligation is to have the bride and the groom into their home. And I just think my imagination went a little bit wild with this. It's like, could you imagine being a young couple? I mean, these, these people are young. They married a whole lot earlier than we do, uh, to be able to sit with your aunt and her husband and ask questions about marriage and uh, about children and, and about faith. And, and these people would pour their, their experiences and their hard-won hard wisdom into the bride and the groom over a period of seven days. Man, I love the picture of that. I think that's so beautiful. This, a Jewish wedding, just like all other aspects of Judaism, was a communal faith. Worship was meant to be communal. Life was communal. And so were weddings. We Americans have a hard time with this because we were taught, you know, rugged individualism and my rights and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But this is not the way of Judaism. It's not the way of the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Life was shared. Grief was shared. Love was shared. That's a little bit of a joke at polygamy. Food, water, wine was shared. Burdens were shared. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that a Jewish wedding would contain this element of this seven days with visiting with friends and family. Something else that stood out to me in studying about this, the first century Jewish weddings is that Since the bride and groom celebrated in other people's homes during this seven-day period, that means the bridal party was not responsible for feeding everyone for seven days. That feeding of people for seven days would would, um, come from the host that hosts them into their house every night. So that's what I thought. I thought that, of course, they ran out of wine. This is a seven-day celebration, but that's probably not the case. They probably ran out of wine that night at the wedding. So if that's the case, if that's what happened, then they ran out of wine at the wedding celebration on the day of, on the first night of partying. And this kind of makes sense because, like I said, the responsibility for food and drink only falls on them that first night. And to run out, that explains why someone would be shamed. This family would not live this down. They would be gossiped about. It was to their embarrassment and shame. And so we have this story in John's Gospel, this wedding in Cana, where the wine ran out and Jesus turned water into wine. And the text begins in verse 1, three days later. Three days later. So what had been going on before chapter 2? In chapter 1, we see that Jesus is proclaimed as the Word of God. He's made flesh and is now dwelling among us. We also see that John is baptizing people and then he baptizes uh, and he includes this declaration that Jesus is the way and then Jesus begins calling his disciples. And then in chapter 2, three days later, three days later, Jesus and his disciples and his mother attend a wedding. 
a commentary that I read that talked about this wedding was on a Tuesday because I wanted to know what three days, where are we counting from? So this commentary, and several commentaries actually said it was Tuesday. But this wedding was on a Tuesday as counted by the Hebrew week beginning on Sunday. The third day was chosen as the wedding day in ancient Judaism because it is only on the third day of creation that God said it was good. And God said it was good twice on the third day of creation. Thus the Jews considered that day doubly blessed. And so Tuesdays were ideal for Jewish weddings, for that gave the, and that also gave the guests time to get there after the Sabbath and remain for the multiple days of feasting. So Tuesdays are a double blessing. I love that. I also love that they get married on a Tuesday. These Saturday weddings are very expensive. We also see in verse 1 and 2 that Jesus, his disciple, and Jesus' mother have been invited to this wedding. So this wedding was from somebody they likely knew in their family. And so in verse 3, while they were celebrating, the wine ran out, and Jesus' mother hurried over to her son. And Mary says, The host stands on the brink of embarrassment. There are many guests, and there are no more wine. There is no more wine. Now, here's a question that I have that I don't think I've ever thought about before. How did Mary know he could fix this? I mean, if I'm at a, if I'm at a wedding with my oldest son and somebody runs out of something, I'm not going to turn to him and go, hey, go multiply this, go do something. Why did she think he could fix this? This is a ha moment, something different's going on. Again, my imagination running wild, I'm thinking maybe when he was a child and a teenager, you know, he did some small miracles within their home for her. Maybe did he, did he ever unburn food for Mary? Did he heal wounds and cuts for Mary? Was he her own personal neosporin and peroxide? When Mary ran out of wine at home, did Jesus make more? On and on and on. What made Mary think her son could fix this? Her son's response to her? He says, dear woman, is it our problem they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not arrived. The term dear woman is actually a translation of woman. In the Aramaic, it literally says woman, why is this our problem? Now, we have a hard time with that because we typically don't address people that way. It seems a little bit of a, an insult, right? I, uh, I knew a guy back in, when I was in high school and... Um, we would go over at his grandparents' house, and the, the grandfather called the grandmother woman all the time, like, woman, is that food ready, or woman, did you? And I would think, what in the world? It just doesn't sound good. It's not endearing. It's not lovely. It's just kind of, ugh. But we have to go back to the context, and I think that it was more of a way of saying ma'am. And commentators uh, agree with that. We see in the scriptures in the gospel that Jesus calls more than one woman, woman, when he addresses her. And most likely it was an ancient way of saying ma'am. But still, for Jesus to call his mother ma'am, that's a little weird. Now, if, if mom asks you to do something, you need to say yes ma'am or no ma'am. That's one thing. But I'm not going to walk up to my mother and say, ma'am, what did you have for dinner last night? Or, ma'am, can I borrow the car keys? It's a, little, it's a little straining right there that Jesus would still call his mother in this way. 
Amy Jill Levine, who's a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt, says that this is Jesus' way of downplaying the fact that this is his mother. He is playing down their familial relation, perhaps as a way of getting to that point where it is time to separate from his mom. He's putting some distance between them. I like to think of this exchange kind of like when your kids get to a certain point and they, they think they're cool and maybe middle school or whatever, and they're with their middle school friends and y'all are at the mall and you're, you're paying for lunch for your kid and three kids and three other kids that you don't even know and da-da-da-da-da. And your kid at the table in the food court looks over you and says, hey, Melinda, can you pass the ketchup? Yeah. Anybody get away with calling their parents like that? <laughs> it didn't work for me. I, and so I like to think of it a little bit like that. Or, or, or you've heard your name called so many times in a day that eventually you're just like, I can't hear it anymore. So you completely tune out the word mother. Uh, if you're a mom, you've done this, please be honest. You tune it out. And then they've said it over and over and over again. And then finally they yell, Melinda! And then you're like, oh, right? So maybe it was something like that. Either way. But then what's fascinating to me in this story is Jesus tells her no. Jesus tells his mom no. He won't do it because his time has not yet arrived. Have any of you, were any of you able to tell your parents no if they ask you to do chores or pick up something? I wasn't. Maybe you were. You know, if my, if my dad asked me to take out the trash at 12, I, I didn't say no or my time has not arrived, Dad. <laughs> it's unthinkable. We don't really say, we don't, you know, when our parents ask us to do something, unless it's just really crazy and silly and could harm us, we, we don't just say no. And I'm not talking about, you know, when we say to our parents sometimes, can I do this later? I need to finish this homework. That's all fine. And we can do that. But just generally to say no, it's not really a thing. <clears throat> Several years ago, my family and my friends Andy's family, we would always go to Panama City Beach every summer. We stayed at the same place and hung out together and just had a, incredible uh, vacation memories during that week. And so we were like in this little camping camp area. I mean, it was not tents. It was like hotel rooms, but it was like in a camp set up. And um, so our rooms were all together on one side. And at the end of all these rooms was the, the laundry center. And so... She and I had been up till 10 and 11 o'clock at night doing laundry. And we were like, why are we doing this? And so my oldest child uh, was, in, was in the room next door playing Xbox, wide awake, just playing his Xbox. And Andy looks at me and says, why isn't he staying up to watch the laundry? We want to go to sleep. Like, you're absolutely right. So I, I go into the room and I'm like, hey, we need you to watch the laundry for us so we can go to bed. You're still awake. And without missing a beat and without turning away from the TV, my child goes, I don't want to. And I, I eyes just bug out of my head. And I look at Andy and she looks at me and I go, you don't want to? Well, as soon as I did that, that Xbox stopped, and he slowly turned his head around, and I'm just, and then he says, I'm going, I'm going. Yeah, we don't get the option to say that kind of stuff to our parents. 
and this is one of the better parts of the whole story to me. It's not, not the miracle part, which is fantastic, but Mary's response to her sons. You know, Jesus tells her, no, I'm not going to do it. My time has not arrived. She's looking at him, and as soon as he says that, she turns away and looks at the servants and says, do what he tells you to do. I love that, that she's like, yeah, you didn't even just say that. We're moving on. This has to be done, and you're going to do it. The expectation was he would do what she said. She doesn't conjole, cajole him or guilt trip him or shame him. She just smooth turns around and gets on with the thing. She says, he might be the son of God, but he's still my son too. In verse 6, in that area, there were six massive stone water pots that could each hold 20 to 30 gallons. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites, and Jesus' instructions were clear. Fill each water pot with water until it's ready to spill over the top. Then fill a cup and deliver it to the head waiter. That's a lot of wine. A whole lot of wine. I want you to imagine... 120 to 180 gallons of milk just lined up. I want you to imagine a thousand bottles of wine. That's how much wine we're talking about. These are not metropolis places. <laughs> These are small places. There's no way they needed that much wine. There's no way. I, somebody, somebody that I was reading said that Jesus delights in your joy more than you know. He does not withhold joy from his people. And I love that, that there's always an abundance. And, and so I, I'm trying to figure out why so much wine? What's the point? What's this, is there any symbolism? What's going on there? One of the commentaries that I read said, um, the extravagant proportions here anticipate the extravagant proportions of feeding the 5,000. In both instances, the reader is shown the superabundance of gifts available through Jesus. I can imagine that there was so much wine left over that they were sending it home with people, especially these families that were going to be hosting the bride and groom over the next few days. Can you imagine? They didn't have to go out and buy wine for their parties for the next seven days. They just grabbed them some bottles and went home. Finally, I'll wrap this up. The head waiter in verse 10 says, The wine is delectable. Why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine? A host would generally serve the good wine first, and when his inebriated guests don't notice or care, he would serve the inferior wine. You have held back the best for last. I don't know that I've ever drank really good wine, it, you know, like expensive. And to me, if it's over $10, it's expensive. That's just me. So I don't know that I would know the difference between an inferior wine and a good wine. If somebody wants to share that with me, like take me out for a wine tasting, and I'm, 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 a, I'm your girl. We can do that. But what I thought about in this verse is that sometimes the best is saved for last. Because the reading today from the lectionary is about a wedding with lots of wine, I can't help but connect it to my own upcoming nuptials. You know, my, my first wedding was not what I had envisioned it would be. I had dreamed for as long as I could remember what my wedding would look like and how that would work. And 
what kind of music. I remember being in, the, in my 11th grade in my home economics class. They call it something else now, and I'm too old to know what that is. But home economics back in the day. She, our teacher, Miss Byram, had us make a, a wedding binder. Boys in the class had to do it too. And you had to do your dream wedding in this binder. But you also had to calculate the cost. And you had to have a budget, and you had to fall in line with that budget. And then you had to decide, okay, this is not as important as the other. So I had that binder. Man, I had a very extravagant wedding planned. And I didn't get that. My friends weren't there. The rest of my family weren't there. There was no real cake. There was no dancing. There was no wine. There were no beautiful flowers. No one was singing. And knowing where the end of this marriage would take me, as I look back on it, it it's just tinged with sadness. But this wedding in May will be different. It will not be extravagant. It will not be over the top. There will not be a Cinderella carriage waiting to take me to the church. No one is going to eat filet mignon or lobster. The alcohol options will be limited. No one is spending thousands of dollars on flowers, decorations, favors for guests, which I think is ridiculous because none of that stuff really matters to us. I do want a beautiful wedding. I've always dreamed of one, and I'm going to have one in May, Lord willing. But the important part for me is you, my family, eating tacos together, drinking champagne and lemonade and cake and taco bars and dancing. Most importantly, my fiancé. That's the most important thing, because sometimes the best is saved for last.